and he had been protected. When he heard this, he was very perplexed, and yet he used to enjoy listening to him. An opportune day came when Herod, on his birthday, had held a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading people of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me whatever you want, and I will give it to you. And he swore to her, whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you up to, up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in a hurry to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And all the king was very sorry because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head. And he went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When the disciples heard about this, they came and carried away his body and laid it in a tomb. The word of the Lord. The Lord be with you. Uh, please pray with me. Lord, we have uh, heard a hard word this morning, and we ask now that even in such a word, that a word of grace might be upon us. We ask in the name of Christ, our Lord. Amen. Flannery O'Connor makes this striking claim in her posthumously collected work, Mystery and Manners. She writes, there is a moment in every story in which the presence of grace can be felt as it waits to be accepted or rejected, even though the reader may not recognize this moment. There is a moment in every story in which the presence of grace can be felt. If that's true of every story, I wonder how many of us will recognize the moment of the presence of grace this morning. When Lena just finished reading the scriptures and said, the word of the Lord, did anyone else find it difficult to say, thanks be to God? The story of Herod and Herodias reads like the kind of royal gossip bait click that you might find on Yahoo Entertainment News. King sees ghosts. Underage princess dances for favors. Royal birthday bash serves up profit on a platter. It's a gruesome tale about a politician haunted by a guilt-ridden memory of when he was ensnared by an idle boast he made in front of a group of drunken men to his stepdaughter and was manipulated by his vengeful wife to order the grisly execution of a political prisoner whom he actually liked at his own state birthday banquet. The backstory is even worse. This is Herod Antipas, Herod Jr., 
one of the many sons of Herod the Great, whom you might remember, tried to kill Jesus as an infant. Herod Antipas, one day while visiting Rome, fell in love, or so they say, with his stepbrother's wife, Herodias. And so he divorced his wife, who happened to be the daughter of King Aretas of a neighboring land. And so he then went to war to defend his daughter's honor as payback and soundly defeated Herod. And so he's got some political difficulties because of that. Not only was Herodias Herod's stepbrother's wife, but she was also his niece. This is because the many children of Herod the Great and his 10 wives often intermarried. So Herodias was the granddaughter of Herod the Great and the daughter of his son, Aristobulus, who was one of the many half-brothers of Herod Antipas. You with me? So John told Herod, this is not right. And that's how he ended up in prison. It's a story that seems more fitting for a Hollywood movie than as a scene in the good news of Jesus Christ. And in fact, over the centuries, this passage has been a favorite and inspiration, not so much for preachers, this is the first time I'm preaching on it, but for artists who have produced some extraordinary paintings, as well as movies, a play, and even an opera based on this story. I think it is an incredibly well-crafted story with multiple biblical allusions, which you may have caught. The phrase, for example, up to half of my kingdom reminds us of the story of Esther and the feast that she had and the offer that was made to her. The murder of John is reminiscent of the murder of Naboth by King Ahab, urged on by his queen Jezebel. The idol oath made by Herod recalls the rash oath made by Jephthah with dire consequences for his daughter. And for those of you who grew up in the Catholic Church, you might remember the story, the beheading of Holofernes uh, by Judith. These echoes, these stories tell us of what might happen, stories of death and even of redemption. What's particularly unusual about Mark doing this here is that this story is unusually long. We've seen that Mark likes to move his narrative along briskly to go immediately from one story about Jesus to the next. And yet here he takes this long and seemingly unnecessary digression to tell us about Herod and John. So we have to assume that there must be some reason, that there must be some importance why Mark places this story here, this flashback in this moment. They say that in real estate, the three most important things are location, location, and location. May not be the most important thing in the Bible, but it is worth considering why Mark chooses this point in the gospel to tell us about the death of John. I think first that we have to remember that last week we heard in the story of the two saved daughters how Mark used the technique of sandwiching one story inside of another so that the two stories can interpret each other. Same thing is happening here. 
We didn't get to read it, the, uh, the greater story, but right before our reading, Jesus sends out his disciples. So they went out, proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons, anointed with oil many who were sick, and healed them. The disciples had this great success, and that's the news that Herod hears about Jesus. That's why he thinks that John has been raised from the dead. It's not that he believes in a literal resurrection, but that somehow maybe John's spirit and his mission has been resuscitated and continues in the person of Jesus. And then after our reading comes the conclusion of that mission, that the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and saw. And so our reading is sandwiched between the sending out and the returning of the disciples and the success of their mission. And so our story serves as this dramatic contrast as a kind of sobering warning about discipleship. The inbreaking of God's reign will be very welcome by some, by many perhaps, but for others, it will provoke resistance, violence, and even death. Some mission work and ministry will be successful and bear much obvious fruit, but others will struggle and will lead to unjust imprisonment, as in the case of John. Preaching the message of repentance, proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ, bearing witness and speaking truth to power has its rewards, but it also has its costs. What Rome did to John to silence him has been, is, and will be repeated by every earthly kingdom because every earthly kingdom opposes the truth, the truth tellers, and the kingdom of God. At the very least, this story tells us that we must resist every variant of the so-called gospel of health and wealth, which is no gospel at all. If John, whom Jesus will later praise as the greatest born of women, could suffer such a shameful, ignoble death, then we have to acknowledge that genuine discipleship must be measured by something other than the accumulation of personal comforts and fortunes. This, I think, is meant to be an encouragement to those who are suffering for their faith then and now. We are here cautioned against judging the success or the lack of success of a ministry or of a life based on outside appearances as humans see. As God sees, it may be that the one that those who have the least to show for their efforts have been the ones who have been the most courageous and most faithful in responding to the call of God. Second, not only is this story sandwiched in between the mission of the disciples, but it is sandwiched in between the earlier stories of the two daughters from last week and sets up the next story of the feeding of the 5,000. It's like a sandwich within a sandwich, kind of like the, uh, the turducken of Thanksgiving Day, right? It's like you got one inside another, inside another. And so in doing this, Mark is setting up for us this, this dramatic juxtaposition between the kingdoms of Rome and the kingdom of God. Remember last week, there were two daughters whose lives were saved, whose lives were rescued by faith and grace. This week, we hear about two daughters who use their position of power to destroy and to take a life. 
Now, I'm not sure how you sort of imagine the dancing scene in this story, but I know that Hollywood has portrayed the daughter of Herodias as a young woman dancing sensuously and provocatively. According to the first century historian Josephus, her name was Salome, and scholars estimate that she was probably somewhere between nine and 19 years old. Mark, however, deliberately describes this daughter, Salome, using a word translated as girl, but it's an unusual word that only appears twice in describing her and in describing the daughter of Jairus from last week. It's the only time this word is used. So if we want to be consistent, remember last week when Jesus Talitha Kum, Mark said, it translated means little girl, rise up. Little girl. So if we want to be consistent, we should describe the dancing daughter of Herodias as a little girl. Perhaps she too was 12 years old or younger. When we do that, this dancing scene becomes even more obscene. And I think that's the point that Mark is making. The way the empire treats its daughters, the way that the kingdoms of the earth treats its daughters is antithetical to the compassion and loving way that Jesus treats his daughters in his kingdom. Similar contrasts will then be made with the story of the feeding of the 5,000, which follows our reading. The feasts of the empire are for the few, the powerful, the elite, while the feasts of the kingdom of God are for all. Herod's banquet is one fundamentally of scarcity, while Jesus's table is one of abundance with much left over. Herod's extravagant feast culminates only in death, while Jesus's humble feeding of the many results in a life-sustaining meal for everyone. It's a reminder again that the kingdom of God, which Jesus will usher in, is unlike any earthly kingdom that we know. And third, the last time we saw John was way back in chapter one. He came as a forerunner to prepare the way for Jesus. He preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. And then after he baptizes Jesus, we read, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. John's arrest, the explanation for that is given to us now. It was his arrest that then launched the beginning of Jesus's ministry. And now with his death, John's work as a forerunner is concluded, but he leaves us with this foreshadowing of what's ahead. John is arrested or handed over, and Jesus will later be betrayed or handed over, same word. Herod's hesitancy toward John's execution foreshadows Pontius Pilate's vacillation over Jesus's fate. Herod acknowledged that John was a righteous and holy man, and Pilate likewise will find no guilt in Jesus. Herod had John killed because he did not want to lose face in front of his dinner guests. And Pilate will also kill Jesus because of the pressure from the crowds. John is beheaded, a shameful form of death, and Jesus will be crucified, an even more shameful form of execution. But perhaps the most important detail and difference is this. Remember that our reading today began with the question, not about John, 
but about Jesus. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus's name had become known. So the central question that is being asked in our text is actually not about John or about Herod. It's about Jesus. Not who is John, but who is Jesus. The crowd so far have witnessed Jesus' teaching, his exorcisms, and his healings, his wonder powers. And they're asking, is Jesus just John raised from the dead? Is he Elijah? Is he one of the prophets of old? And people in Jesus' hometown ask, isn't this just Mary's son, the carpenter? Who is this Jesus? And so far, only the demons have been able to correctly identify who Jesus is. The assertion that Mark made in the very first sentence, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus has been silencing the demons because he doesn't want the crowds to hear their words and to have their misconceptions about what his mission is and who he is as Messiah to be reinforced. And so with the death of John, Mark is setting up for us what is to come and to fully reveal later Jesus' mission and identity. And he concludes, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. It's a sentence that evokes for us the death of Jesus. John here is not vindicated by God. He's just another victim of the machinery of empire. And Mark is telling us, he's telling us now, that the same fate waits Jesus. Jesus, the son of God, will also die, and they will take his body and lay it in a tomb. Death and burial are the end of this story. And every story, that's how it ends. But as a people of faith, we believe that this is the end of this story, but it is not the end of the story. But for now, we understand that bad things happen to the people of God. But we also understand and believe that one day, God will set right what has gone wrong. Not today, but one day, John will be vindicated. This is our hope. This is our eschatological hope. That one day, all will be made well. Jesus is not only the Alpha, but the Omega. Not only the beginning, but the end. He's not just the vulnerable man crucified on a cross. He will be also the Son of God, who will be raised, ascend, and sit at the right hand of the Father, the God Almighty. The crooked shall be made straight. Behold, he makes all things new. Let me close with this reflection with you today. C.S. Lewis, in narrating the journey of his conversion in his autobiography, Surprise by Joy, wrote this. For the first time, I examined myself with a seriously practical purpose. And there I found what appalled me, a zoo of lusts, a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears, a harem of fondled hatreds. My name was Legion. In his honest self-examination, 
He concluded and he was able to recognize that he was like the man we heard about, the man who had been possessed by so many demons collectively known as Legion. It may be that you and I today find it easy to be appalled by the actions of Herod, Herodias, and Salome in their treacherous scheme to murder John. It would be easy for us to blame the corruptions, the moral bankruptcy, the violence in the world on others, whether institutions, corporations, governments, the last generation, or our parents. But as unsavory as it may be, I believe we need to recognize and confess, my name is Herod. My name is Herodias. Mark does not caricature Herod as being especially evil. It is true that he was in a position of great power where his choices had greater consequences. But like all of us, but like all of us, he was assailed by these contradictory impulses within himself and prone to the social pressures around him just as we are. He feared the truth, and yet he kept it nearby. He imprisoned the truth, and yet he also protected it. He was perplexed by the truth, and yet he heard it gladly. And then in the end, though he grieved, with grieving, he chose political expediency and self-preservation over righteousness, things that all of us might do. We've been called to be messengers, heralds of the good news of Jesus Christ. But I think too often, we easily slip into behaving more like Herod Antipas. Have we not, like Herod, wanting to be light, capitulated, to the social pressures around us? Have we not, like Herodias, held on to life-consuming bitterness and resentment? Have we not, like Salome, been either victims of or participated in questionable, inappropriate activities? Have you not, as tired parents, chosen expediency, that of anger and yelling and spanking over patience and compassion when your toddler has a meltdown on aisle five in the grocery store? Have you not, wanting to keep everyone happy, kept silent, yielding to the voices around you? Have you not, for personal advancement, given in to the intoxicating approval of the crowds over the quiet, sobering guidance of your conscience? Have you not, to avoid conflict, given in to questionable demands of work, school, home, and of others? Have you not to maintain your own popularity, prestige, privilege, and power betrayed and sacrificed others? Have you not worried more about what others think than about what is right? Have you not to increase your own self-comfort, neglected family, church, and the work of world transformation? Have you not spent far too much time justifying your lukewarm, mild interest in Jesus rather than answering the call to fully, wholeheartedly, daily 
give up your life, to pick up the cross and follow him. I know I have. And I know that I need this daily repentance for the kingdom of God is near. So let me exhort you this morning, not to despair, not to despair, but to come once more, to come back once more in repentance and find wholeness and peace. You and I can make a different choice than the one made by Herod and Herodias. You and I are not of this world. You no longer belong to this kingdom. You are daughters and sons of the kingdom of God. So repent and come and believe the good news of Jesus Christ and be at peace. Pray with me. Lord, sometimes your words are harder to hear than others. And this morning, we are just simply uh, reminded of what the world looks like without you. We need no more examples of the brokenness of our world. And so we look forward, God, to your kingdom, to a time when all shall be made right. And we ask that in this moment, we will be vessels embodying the presence of your grace to make better choices that exemplify what it is to be your sons and daughters and to live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We ask trusting in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.